This is a recording from the More Than the Score lecture series at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. The 2010 midterm elections are fast approaching. Larry Sabato, director of the UVA Center for Politics, peers into his crystal ball for a prediction and is introduced by Cindy Frederick, UVA's Associate Vice President for Engagement. In July 2008, Dr. Sabato correctly projected that Barack Obama would win the presidency in a near landslide. He predicted a 364 to 174 margin in the Electoral College, just one vote away from the final tally of 365 to 173. And he also forecasted President Obama's exact 53 percentage popular vote margin. In addition, Dr. Sabato accurately predicted 99% of the Senate House and Governor Winders in both 2006 and 2008, by far the best showing in the business. Dr. Sabato is home both in the classroom and in the television studio, and he bridges the gap between the ivory tower and the real world of politics. He's the author of 24 books and countless essays on politics, including the well-known Feeding Frenzy, A More Perfect Constitution, and The Year of Obama. And he is the author of an upcoming book on the legacy of John F. Kennedy. A Rhodes Scholar, Dr. Sabato has taught more than 15,000 students in his career at Oxford, Cambridge, and our home, the University of Virginia. In 2001, he was named the Thomas Jefferson Award winner, UVA's highest honor. Dr. Sabato is a professor of politics and the director of the UVA Center for Politics, founded in 1998 to improve civic education and the political process. Please join me now in welcoming Dr. Sabato, who believes that politics is a good thing. Thank you. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you, Althea. It's always glad to, always good to be at this more than the score and all the alumni events that we do over the years and really over 40 years. Uh, uh, thanks to your support of our beloved university, I've been kept out of the nasty real world. Uh, I have all inside work, no heavy lifting, and uh, that's due to you and your support, which I hope will continue with, I, I assume, uh, major contributions to the Center for Politics. Um, <laughs> I think you've been handed uh, uh, sheets of paper, and they are, this is an environmentally conscious place. They're not to be wasted. Every single one of them is to be returned with as much as you can give in these tough economic times, though UVA graduates never have tough economic times. We, we, we do quite well. But anyway, we're uh, just so pleased to be with you, and, and I know you're, you want to talk about politics, and I want to talk about politics, and our agreement uh, that we always have at these things is that <clears throat> since we are a family, a Wahoo family, it's the one thing we all have in common, right? We, all, we went to the University of Virginia. We love the University of Virginia. We always want the best for the University of Virginia. Uh, this is between us, or I should say among us, off the record. There's no, you want me to be frank? It's off the record. You know, you don't, you don't tell people outside the room, you know, put down those text messaging systems and uh, all the rest of it. You know, if you want me to sanitize it the way I do on television, I'd be happy to do that. Not a problem, but I kind of think that you want me to be honest. And uh, it's fun to do that at these events. Well, here we are in yet another election cycle. They seem to, 
to uh, run uh, with great speed, and uh, those of us who are in the system uh, look and, and feel and sound as though we've been spending a lot of time in a meth lab. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of exhausting at this point in time and a blur. It's, it's difficult to keep up with all these races simultaneously because so much happens in a day. You know, we have, uh, this is really true, seven to ten news cycles a day now. We used to have uh, one or two news cycles in a day. If you had morning and afternoon newspapers, one or two news cycles in a day. But today, uh, it's seven to ten, and so things are so sped up. So much happens. I think people don't remember what occurred two weeks ago, and the political system can change even faster than it used to. Uh, two other changes. One is we now have a system of voting over at least a month. In some places, it's six weeks. Uh, you no longer have that one-day clearance sale called Election Day. So everything was geared to that final day. No longer. You've got a, a month or six weeks of Election Days. And it means politics is more intense. It means politics is nastier. It means politics uh, is more expensive because you have to run flat out for a month or six weeks. Uh, and uh, things are saved. You know, this is the critical period right now. In my business, we get, uh, I don't want to tell you what we get. And, and I delete a great deal of it. I hope it's not on my hard drive. I worry that, you know, if I drop dead, somebody's going to take that hard drive and translate this stuff. You would not believe what comes in. Uh, the, the fastest growing field in politics is called oppo research, opposition research. And what happens is that both parties do it equally. Don't bother telling me it's one side or the other. They do it equally. Uh, they hire opposition researchers many months in advance, sometimes years in advance. And they investigate every nook and cranny of the lives of their opponents and the opponent's family and the opponent's investments and the opponent's marriages and divorces and the opponent's bankruptcies and the opponent's late taxes. And, uh, you know, I, I have, you know, I never met Mother Teresa during her lifetime. Uh, I think even she had problems, probably. Uh, and the rest of us have no hope. We, we have loads of problems. <clears throat> if you ever wonder why the best people don't run for office, which of course we've talked about since Bryce and Tocqueville, and I mean it's always been a part of our political history, but if you ever wonder why today the best people don't run, remember what you have to go through to run. Uh, answer silently. This is a rhetorical question. I don't want to hear any confessions. I'm not a priest. But how many of you would want every nook and cranny of your life exposed on the front pages in advertising? And you wouldn't believe the things they dig up. Well, some of it's not even true. But lots of it is, you know, because very few people have led perfect lives. And uh, I think it really discourages the best people running. They have the most to lose. You know, they built up great reputations over their lifetimes, and their families are proud of them, and their, their kids are proud of them, and uh, it's, it would be an embarrassment for these things to be released. Who runs? People with less to lose. Because, you know, people may already know what they are. Uh, they may already have gotten a good sense of them. Uh, and you know, I'm not saying there aren't good people in politics. I know great people on both sides who somehow have managed to endure this system. But it's, it's a major problem, frankly, for our society because we can't get the kind of people that we would like to see run, run.
You know, you want to get the best, not mediocre people, not second, third, fourth best. You know, University of Virginia graduates, for years I've tried to get more of our Virginia people to run for public office, like our state legislature, which desperately needs some enlightenment. Uh, and, and in both caucuses, Virginia graduates could supply that. Now, I don't want to mention any schools, Virginia Tech. I don't want to mention any schools <laughs> who's, that supply a lot of legislators. Uh, you know, but we're way down. You know, when I was growing up, uh, Virginia had a third or more of the legislature. They were Virginia undergraduate uh, graduate degrees or, or law degrees or business degrees or whatever. We have hardly any left. Why? Because, again, I think our people have accomplished a lot. They don't want to risk it. They're out making big bucks and finance or law or whatever it is that their endeavor is in life. And they don't run it. They're, all, they're global. It's a global economy. They're all over the place. They don't have time to, to settle down in, in some, you know, rural district and, and spend all their time there and run and, and go to, you know, school board meetings and sit there for three hours. And I understand that. But it really is a problem. And it's something all of us ought to think about. And I thought I would introduce the system with that because uh, this is the time when you're going to be seeing a lot of this opposition research come out. A lot of it's already come out. But they save things for the end. They save a really nasty piece of information for the end. They all do it. And they have ads prepared and all the rest. And that's why some of these close races may flip in the two plus weeks remaining of the campaign. I can't give you, on the closest races, I can't give you a precise estimate of the, of the vote for uh, probably several dozen races, counting House, Senate, and Governor, because they are so close. I can give you an estimate of today, and I can give you a 30,000 feet look of the, of the whole picture, what it's probably going to turn out to be, uh, generally with the numbers. But I can't tell you in specific races, yeah, Sharon Angle or Harry Reid will win in Nevada. It's not possible, because both sides have saved tons of money, and they both have 10-plus million to spend in the last uh, four weeks of the campaign. Just think about what's going to be coming out there. By the way, their early voting started today. This is the signal for it all to start, as though it hasn't already started in that race. Okay, let's get that 30,000 view, uh, if we can, of the, uh, of the um, I don't know if this is working or not. Let's try this, see if we can get it to work there. There we go. Uh, I could have stopped with the first line here. In case you can't read it, it says economy, unemployment, GDP, income growth. Uh, this, this is an election about the economy. When you have an economy this bad, uh, it's very difficult for anything else to get traction politically. And so, uh, you know, I like to say the economy is, is the black hole of the election. It's sucking in all the available media light. And there's, there's no light to shine or very little light to shine on other issues no matter what people will tell you. Now, it's not to say nothing else is important. The Tea Party, which has become a major part of this election for good or ill, or a combination of good and ill, uh, they are motivated by the national debt and by taxes and by spending. But you know, that's a subset of the economy. If, it, if this economy were roaring and we didn't have the kind of national deficits, annual deficits that we have, uh, then obviously you didn't have the stimulus bill and you didn't have a lot of other stimuli beyond the stimulus bill, you wouldn't have uh, this kind of political movement this year. So that's connected to the economy. But these other things, as important as they are, and every one of them is important, don't think I'm saying they're not important, they just don't matter in the election. Uh, immigration, 
uh, which, which got some attention. It matters maybe in Arizona and a couple other places, but not nationally. The gay marriage controversy or don't ask, don't tell. It's just not, it's not resonating. People aren't focusing on that. The mosque issue in New York never has so much attention been given to an issue that has affected so few votes, even in New York. Uh, and the media gets on something, you know, and it's controversial and people start screaming about it. It's a food fight and therefore they cover it because we watch. It's our fault. Don't blame the media. You know, if, yes, they could be adults about it, but they're business. They're business. They want to make money. And they make money when you watch. And you watch because you like to see a car crash. You don't want to see a boring debate on PBS. I mean, you know, Jim Lehrer's great, but that news hour, I mean, it's a snoozer. <laughs> it is. I'm sorry. I've told him that. You know, it's, that, that's my nap time. When I've got that on, you know, I, I catch a piece of this and a piece of that. And then I watch the news with the food fights, and I catch on to what's happening. Uh, Afghanistan, we kicked that down the road. That's for the presidential election. Good or bad, it's for the presidential election. Health care, yes, it's in some of the ads. Yes, some of the candidates talk about it. Yes, it's a motivator for the Tea Party. Again, it happened uh, the better part of a year ago. You know, some provisions have gone into effect. Most haven't. The tax increases haven't kicked in. People, you know, they have an opinion about it, but it's not motivating the vote, uh, except maybe for some of those Tea Party people. Uh, the BP disaster. Remember when the media told you that was the most important thing that happened this year and it was going to determine the election and, you know, day after day they were down there, you know, on the, on the sand. That was tough duty. Uh, it's not even affecting a single race, not one in the Gulf region, not one. It's been mentioned from time to time in the Florida Senate race. It's not motivating voters. Uh, Democrats had hoped that they could turn around this particular election with a focus, a populist focus on Wall Street and, and the banks and going after the big boys. Um, but, uh, and, you know, it resonates to a certain degree with, with their base, but their base is depressed. They're depressed because they expected, as Americans always expect when they elect a new president, miracles. And we all know from American history there are no miracle workers. No Democrats, no Republicans, no one is a miracle worker. And these, uh, the, the economy, this giant ocean liner, takes a lot of ocean to turn around, and, it, and it's going to take probably the better part of this decade for it to turn around. As I always tell people, there are wild cards that can't be predicted even two weeks in advance. Uh, some of you, as I am, old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, which happened, just happened, wasn't planned. It wasn't a political trick. It happened at almost exactly this moment in 1962, lasted for 10 days, changed the entire focus of the 1962 midterms. What would have been a mildly Republican first midterm election for John F. Kennedy became a Democratic triumph. They added Senate seats. They lost hardly any House seats. It's one of the reasons why Nixon lost the California governorship in 1962. Who knew? You know, who knew that was going to happen? It happened. So uh, today it would probably be terrorism, God forbid. We hope nothing happens. You never know. We all are aware that anything could happen on any given day in that realm. And who knows how it would play? Would there be a rally around the flag effect? Would there be uh, people on the other side saying the government should have been prepared and they had all kinds of warnings and, and they didn't pay attention? I have no idea. It would depend on the circumstances. A scandal, there are going to be loads of individual scandals because a midterm election is so unlike a presidential election. It is 
a patchwork of local contests. That's what a midterm election is. Yes, there are national themes. You have it in a national context of presidential popularity, the state of the economy, that kind of thing. But in the end, it's a patchwork of local contests. And some places don't have hot contests and other places uh, do. So the scandals tend to be localized rather than uh, national. Uh, one other major difference which needs to be stressed, and, and people always confuse midterms and presidential elections. They couldn't be more different, pure apples and oranges, because of who turns out and what the turnout level is. And remember, everybody, just about everybody, gets it wrong every two years because they take a presidential election and they say, well, that's, that'll tell us, that tells us what's going to happen in two years. No. And then you get a midterm election result, you watch, and you know it's going to be a Republican midterm, and then everybody's going to say, oh, that's it. One term, Barack. And we've got a little piece coming out two days after the election on the crystal ball. I hope you all subscribe, and it's free. It's a product of your university, and we don't give out the emails. We solicit you, but no one else. Uh, and that's the way it should be. I don't think there are any other interests any other needs that I've, I've come across. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a little piece coming out two days after the election, and, and I'll just tell you what it is. It's, uh, it's uh, one quote right after another from the domestic press, from the foreign press, calling Obama OTB, one-term Barack. He's finished. Look at this. His, his presidency's over. He really ought to go ahead and say he's going to be a one-term president, try to get as much done as he can, in, the, in his remaining two years in office, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, you know, we're going to talk about this. He may be the one-term president, but nobody knows that, and no one could know that as a result of November. And the kicker in the piece is uh, two things. One is um, we fit, and we admit it halfway through the piece, because every single quote was taken from November, December 1994, and OTB was one-term bill, not one-term Barack. And by the way, the same was done to Reagan in 1982, that famous David Broder piece saying, it's over, he's a one-term president, he's too old, go ahead and announce now, you're a one-termer, do the best you can to muddle through, and let's get a real president in here, 1984. And then Reagan got 58% two years later. Clinton wins by 8% two years later. So don't read anything into the midterm. Why? Because midterm elections have about a 40% turnout, 40% of adults. Presidential elections, 62, 63% of adults. Is it a random sample of the population both times? Not a chance. The presidential election has an enormously higher participation rate by young people, by uh, minorities, uh, both groups heavily Democratic. But, you know, two, two to one, to three to one, four to one, even nine to one. Democratic. And those groups do not show up generally for midterm elections. Their turnouts are very low. Uh, midterm elections are dominated by, um, some people call them senior citizens, I call them my friends. Uh, <laughs> as I round the bend towards 60 here very shortly, uh, they are all my friends. And so I don't like that scene. I like to think of it as, you know, middle-aged citizens maybe, middle-aged man. You know, that old thing from Saturday Night Live. So, uh, but it's the older people who dominate midterm elections uh, and whites who tend to be disproportionately Republican and all the rest. So don't ever confuse a midterm and a presidential. And people will make that mistake starting election night 
November 2nd. And you can say, that's wrong. Those people don't know what they're talking about. Okay, which is usually what you can say, no matter who's on. <laughs> Let's get right to the predictions, because that's what you all want. Now, we're known at the Crystal Ball for early predictions. Now, how do we do early predictions? We're the only ratings agency in the country that does it two ways simultaneously. We do district by district, state by state, that is evaluating the candidates and how much money they've raised and what we know of their problems and all the rest of it to try to get some sense, plus the balance that exists in that district or state in a particular year. And then uh, there are some wonderful political science models where you plug in various data and information, some of them use presidential popularity and some of them use the number of seats gained by the, uh, the incumbent party. Over the last couple of elections, Democrats have gained 55 seats in just two elections, which means they're very vulnerable to a pendulum swing, which six months ago we named the post-election book. It better be a pendulum swing because that's we've already got it out there. Uh, we haven't written it yet, but the, the cover's out there. And it's a pendulum swing. When you have a pendulum swing, the first seats to go are the ones that uh, have uh, very uh, competitive marginals, where uh, obviously if they have won in good Democratic years by 3 or 4%, they're likely to lose in good Republican years by 3 or 4%. That's what a pendulum swing is. In Britain, they call it the swingometer uh, for, uh, for parliamentary elections. So uh, we did this prior to Labor Day. We were the first group, and this will please the Republicans. It will displease the Democrats. Independents, I, I don't know. I've never understood you. I have no clue what, what you will think. Uh, and I just want to remind the Democrats in the room, you were thrilled with my predictions in 2006 and 2008. You remember that. You know, Tim Kaine went on television and trashed me in person. And the crystal ball uh, before Labor Day said some very unkind things after he loved our predictions in 2006 and 2008. But suddenly, we became completely inaccurate, according to uh, Tim Kaine. And that's the way partisans are on both sides. Boy, I've learned that. You, you t they only want to hear what they want to hear. And that's, that's the way it is. But that's not my job. So uh, before Labor Day, we took these the st state by state, district by district, and all these and the models, uh, which are quite good and have been very predictive of, of the results. And we came up with uh, a Republican House. We were the first to say the House would go Republican. I absolutely stick to that. Uh, we came up with a number that upset loads of Democrats because it was much higher than they had. Republicans need to gain 39. We said that it would be plus 47. We traditionally do an update the week ahead of the election on Thursday, and it will be in the crystal ball. And while I'm not going to reveal anything because we're still working on it, I expect that number to creep up, not down. So I think it is very, very likely that there will be a Republican House of Representatives. Uh, the exact margin you can argue about. And there are predictions all over the lot, but I think it is very likely to be Republican. So this 255-seat Democratic House becomes, at a minimum, 226 Republican seats. Could go into the 230s, somewhere in that vicinity. Now, 218, obviously, is needed to control. So, uh, and people say, gee, that isn't a very great margin. And that's true. It will mean that if, say, 2012, if the economy's roaring and, and Obama's winning a second term, you could, you could have the House flip back. It is possible we're, because of economic dislocation, we're going to be in another period much like 1946 to 54 in the post-World War II 
immediate period when you had lots of economic dislocation. What happened? You had both houses change in 46, both houses change again in 48, both houses flip again in 52, both houses flip again in 54. Is it possible? Sure, it's possible. I don't know. I'm just saying that we could be there where it flips back and forth. Or it could be a case of Obama getting a second term and people deciding they'd like to have this check on him of a Republican Congress or a Republican House if the Senate doesn't go in that direction. Uh, you, like Clinton, you know, the Clinton uh, Republican Congress that lasted for six of Clinton's eight years. Uh, or it could flip back to the Democrats entirely. I don't know. It's, I only predict elections in the year of the election, and generally only a few months in advance because there are too many unknowns, and unknowns worry me. They keep me up at night. Um, so that's, that's the House. Now, it's a small margin in that sense, but it's actually a large margin in another sense. The House of Representatives is a freight train. You must have learned that over the years. Uh, you can have a margin as low as three or four seats and still get what you want passed because you control the speakership and the majority leadership and you've got the whips working and you've got votes in your pocket because you've traded them for this, that, and the other. Both parties have done it equally. In fact, the Republicans ran the House on th a majority of three after the election of 2000. And they got almost everything they wanted. So it's a freight train. And that freight train's going to operate even with a small majority. But, of course, what does that mean? Uh, let's say things pass the House. Well, then they got to go to the Senate, as I'm going to get to the Senate in a moment. Uh, the Senate's going to be closely balanced, whichever party gets a tiny majority. And, of course, that means nobody's in charge. Yes, somebody will get the grand title of majority leader and all those big offices and extra staff. And the majority party will get the, the chairmanships, you know, which... which uh, matter. You know, titles matter on Capitol Hill. These politics, I always remember Barbara Boxer, who's going to win, for those of you from California. I know how unhappy you are. Uh, I know my crowd, but it's, it's, too, it's too democratic. California's too democratic. Uh, and you're, you're going to have a Democrat, you're going to Jerry Brown. We'll get to that. But anyway, um, remember when she said to the general who was, uh, who was testifying on Capitol Hill, and he made the terrible mistake of calling her ma'am. And she said, excuse me, would you please call me Senator? I worked so hard for that title. And that's the way they think. That's the, we don't do that at the University of Virginia. I insist still on Mr. I don't want to hear this professor or doctor thing. We do it outside the university community because people don't understand. They think, they think none of our faculty have degrees. So, you know. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to translate it. But, you know, on grounds, we ought to keep some of these traditions. For goodness sake, do you agree with me? I knew you would, and I wanted to take a drink of water. Uh, so uh, anyway, okay, so the House, the House is done, but then you get to the Senate, nobody controls the Senate. Uh, not, you don't control the Senate, even when the Democrats had 60 votes, they didn't control the Senate. Because remember, the rule in the Senate is you have to have 60 reliable votes. That takes 70 politicians to get 60 reliable votes. Nobody's ever going to have control of the Senate in our lifetimes, I can tell you. So uh, the Senate will kill most of what the House passes, and the House will kill probably a great deal of whatever the Senate passes, no matter who's in charge, and Obama will veto a great deal of whatever both houses pass. And so uh, we're headed for not just gridlock, I call it super gridlock. 
Remember, after 94, you had gridlock with Clinton and Gingrich. But that was a very different time and a very different Congress. You had a lot of Southern conservatives in the Democratic Party still in Congress. You had a lot of moderate liberal Republicans from the Northeast and Midwest and California still in Congress. Forget about it. This is the most polarized Congress we've had since the beginning of the 20th century. They have nothing in common. The old saying about the U.S. and Britain separated by a common language, that's the Democratic and Republican caucuses in Congress. They don't even understand one another. They don't use the same language. They talk past one another. I am convinced that this group coming in, especially with the Tea Party influence in the Republican Party, dragging the caucuses well to the right, you'll have the moderate blue dogs, the moderate conservative blue dogs, defeated disproportionately on the Democratic side, leaving a liberal Democratic caucus. These groups are so polarized, they could not agree on the wording of a Mother's Day resolution. <laughs> they don't agree on the definition of motherhood. Seriously, they couldn't do that. So get ready for super gridlock. It is super gridlock. Now, some people say that's a good thing. The country will run better if government can't do anything, can't do anymore. You have your own opinions about that, pro or con. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll certainly have a, a trial uh, of that uh, kind of, of uh, government. Okay, let's get to the Senate here, and I know so many of you are interested. I'm not going to go over all the races until we get to questions if you want to ask me about particular races. Right now, I'll tell you what the real range is. I think the worst Republicans can do is to gain seven seats. Remember, right now, Democrats have 59, so that would bring Democrats down to 52, all right? I think that's the worst Republicans could do is plus seven. The best they can do is plus 10. So it's between plus seven and plus 10, and 10 is the magic number what they need for control. 50-50, the tie is broken by Vice President Biden in the Democrats' favor. So that's the range, 7 to 10. It's really a very narrow range. And let's keep this in context. That's a big game for a single year for a party in the Senate because you only have 37 races on the ballot. We got one member of my staff at the center. I don't know if Isaac Wood is here. His, his fiance had an argument with, with uh, someone who insisted that it was, a, it was a conspiracy that Virginia did not have a Senate seat on the ballot this year. No, you see, it's, it's built into the system. I got, a, I got an email the other day, this is absolutely true, from clearly a literate person based on the wording of the, of the email saying, I, I know that Harry Reid is on the ballot this year, but I've heard a rumor that Nancy Pelosi is also up for election. Is that true? You know, see if, all 435 seats in the House come up every two years. You know, it's, it's just so hopeless. I, I just, I cry myself to sleep so many times at Pavilion 4. We don't need running water in Pavilion 4. My tears are enough. Okay, it's a slight exaggeration. Slight. All right, now, the Senate, the Senate map. Where are the Republican uh, gains coming? Now, some of it is a Republican hold of seats with retiring members. The, the big buzz in the Beltway is that Joe Sestak has come back and is now leading in Pennsylvania. I'll, I'll, and it's possible, but I'll be shocked. Uh, I expect Toomey's not the best candidate in the world, uh, the Republican nominee, but it is a Republican year in Pennsylvania. They're going to sweep the governorship. Uh, by the way, where are my Pennsylvanians here? I know you guys, you've got a great system, and I salute you for it. You've, you've figured it out. Every eight years, automatically, automatically, and they've done this for 50-plus for years, 
they switch parties. They figured it out. Don't trust either of them. Switch parties frequently. I always tell, I, my, my slogan is, other than politics is a good thing, which sometimes I doubt, uh, but my other slogan is, throw the bums out and throw a new set of bums in, repeat frequently as necessary. And it is very necessary, all right? But Pennsylvania's got it figured out. And so they're going to, this is a Republican year. They're going to gain, I think, four U.S. House seats just in Pennsylvania, the governorship and, when you, and, the, and the state legislature. When you've got that kind of tide, I don't see how a Democrat gets elected to the Senate, but we'll see. Could be wrong on that one. Uh, Kentucky, now here's a great example of how the, the uh, Tea Party has hurt the Republicans. And you say, wait a minute, Rand Paul will probably end up winning that. I agree, Tea Party Republican candidate, he'll probably end up winning. If his mainstream Republican candidate opponent had won in the primary, Trey Grayson, we wouldn't even be looking at this race. It would be 60-40. Obama's popularity in Kentucky is low 30s. This wouldn't even be a race. But it's all these nutty things that Rand Paul, son of Ron Paul, has said that has made it a competitive race when it really shouldn't be on the basis of, the, of this year's election stats. That's true in Nevada. With Harry Reid, if the Republicans had nominated, say, Congressman Dean Heller, it would be over. They want to get rid of Reid. It would be 55-45. But she's so nutty that it's tied. And I don't need to bring up Christine O'Donnell. <laughs> now, those of you who are Republicans, you got to ask yourself a question. Is this not the dumbest thing you've seen either party do in years? They threw away a Senate seat because Mike Castle, the, the moderate Republican who would have won the general election easily, get this, would only have voted with the Republicans about 70% of the time in the Senate. So instead, they're going to get zero because the Democrat was automatically elected when she was nominated. The I'm not a witch, I'm you. God knows. I hope that isn't true. If that's, if that's what we're left with in this country, you know, I'm you? Oh, God. She's not me. But I'd be a warlock, not a witch. Uh, maybe that's it. Okay, so, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, uh, Wisconsin, big surprise there. And I have to admit, I have a bias there. Uh, Russ Feingold and I went to grad school together. We traveled together through the Middle East. He's a good friend. I'm sorry, uh, personal, on a personal level, that he is losing. But I think he's going to lose his seat uh, to Ron Johnson. Why? There's a swing. There's a substantial swing in Wisconsin this year. They're going to win the governorship. They're going to win the state legislature. They're going to pick up probably two net House seats. And... And Russ is out in all likelihood. Uh, he was elected in 1992. He's been lucky in the years he's come up. And the luck ran out, as it often does in politics. Now, watch. He'll come back, fight back, and win. And he'll never let me forget that I've said this, and I don't blame him. Uh, Colorado, another Tea Party candidate. If it had been the other opponent, Jane Norton, this would be a 55-45 race against Mike Bennett, the appointed incumbent. Instead, it's nip and tuck. I give a tiny edge because of the election year, the trends, the wind at the back for the Republicans to uh, Rand Paul and Ken Buck in Colorado and Ron Johnson in Wisconsin and Pat Toomey uh, in Pennsylvania. Some of these are already over. Florida is over. Marco Rubio will win uh, handily for those of you following uh, the Florida race. New Hampshire, that's a hold for the Republicans. Kelly o will win, win handily. Ohio, uh, that's over. Rob Portman will hold that seat for the Republicans. Uh, Illinois is absolutely tied. 
absolutely tied because you have two really bad damaged candidates. Uh, Mark Kirk for the Republicans and Alexei Giannoulias for the Democrats, and people are trying to figure out which one of them will embarrass them the least over the next six years. Kirk, remember, is the one who, who invented those military medals that he didn't get. And that balances Dick Blumenthal in Connecticut, who invented Vietnam War service. I've kind of, and, and they both could win, by the way, and I can see this lunch in the in the uh, Senate uh, dining room where, where uh, Kirk shows off his non-existent medals and Blumenthal spins Vietnam War stories and they could entertain one another. Uh, and he's going to win. Blumenthal will beat uh, Big Man in, in Connecticut. Uh, I've already told you about Boxer. This, this, if the Republicans take over, they have to win in Washington State. They must win. That's the must-win seat now. It, it would have been easy for them because of Castle, but now they have to do it the hard way, and I don't know that they can do it. Patty Murray, who was also elected with Feingold in 1992, is much stronger. It is a more democratic state. Dino Rossi, her Republican opponent, has lost two gubernatorial elections. Yes, one of them extremely closely, but uh, it's tough. It's possible if there's enough of a wave. Remember, the concept of a wave is that you had your people showing up disproportionately, for one thing, and second, uh, you, have, you get the breaks. I mean, politics is, it's half luck. You get the breaks in a year. And even with a wave washing over the country for the Republicans, a red tide, you're going to have sandbars colored blue because the states are so democratic, like California, like Rhode Island, you know, places like that, where it's not going to touch the, the elections. You're still going to have Democrats elected. They may get smaller majorities, but they're still going to win in those states. Anyway, Alaska, we can talk about, I, I color it red because it doesn't matter unless you're an Alaskan, whether Joe Miller, who's another nut, or Lisa Murkowski wins because they both are Republicans. They'll sit in the Republican caucus. And all this fighting over probably 10 votes, they would cast differently, uh, many of them unimportant. That's what, that's what this thing is about. But Miller's another Tea Party candidate. And let me tell you, you know, again, Tea Party's added a lot of people and energy to the Republican Party, but there's going to be hell to pay in, in 2012, uh, especially with the, I think the Tea Party caucus will be probably seven or eight Senate seats for the Republicans, and the chairman of the Tea Party caucus will be Jim DeMint, who will be the shadow either minority or majority leader. Uh, I've told people who are friends of Mitch McConnell to send him an early Christmas present of a case of extra strength, et cetera. Um, he is going to have to negotiate for every vote. It is going to be awful for him. And, and they're going to pull the Republican Party to the right. And because they won, even though they won by smaller majorities than mainstream candidates would have won by, they're going to say, see, see, the people back us, support our agenda, we're in charge. And they're going to pull the GOP nominating process for president to the right. And if that happens, it will make it much, much easier for Obama to win re-election. Okay, now, let's look at the governorship map. This is where the Republicans are really cleaning up. For you Republicans, I saved the best for you for last. Uh, there are 37 governorships up. By the way, the most governorships ever in one year in American history, just because of some circumstances in a special election. Uh, but 37 of them, and I think at a minimum the Republicans will pick up eight net seats, which is a darn good addition in, uh, in one year. 
And they're going to win in places where they usually don't win, in blue states, because people want change. And the Democrats are outgoing, maybe because of term limits or they chose to retire, like Jim Doyle of Wisconsin, and they're all unpopular. Granholm in Michigan and Chet Culver in Iowa, and Doyle, he'll get defeated for re-election. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, Ed Rendell is, uh, is in the 30s or 40s. Ted Strickland, the incumbent governor of Ohio, to my great surprise, is losing. I thought he would pull it out, but I think it's going to be very tough. I think John Kasich will probably win. Rick Schneider in, in Michigan, who's a very interesting guy. His slogan is, one tough nerd. Um, and, uh, and by the way, he's, he's the anti-Tea Party candidate. He won because there were four Tea Party candidates splitting the vote. He's a moderate. Um, watch him. He's, he's got real potential. Um, you know, let's see, Illinois, Illinois Obama's home state. Um, I, maybe the machine can pull it out for Governor Quinn, but I doubt it. He's got a 40% approval rating. I've never seen a governor reelected with a 40% approval rating. What's helping him is, again, the Tea Party nominated Bill Brady, who will be the most conservative governor in Illinois' modern history if he's elected. Uh, if the, he, he won by 200 votes over another state senator, much more moderate, this would be a landslide in Illinois had that other candidate gotten 200 and some more votes. But uh, when you've got the energy like the Tea Party does, that's what happens in these races. Uh, you know, again, we can go through any of these races you want. They're really only four that I see as being tied right now. Florida, another Tea Party candidate, Rick Scott. Um, has so many problems in his past, including a tape where he takes the Fifth Amendment multiple times, I think dozens of times, about Medicare fraud. That doesn't help you generally when you're running for to be governor and, and CEO. Had the mainstream Republican candidate, Bill McCollum, won, this would be a 55-45. Instead, I could easily see Alex Sink becoming the first woman governor of Florida. And believe me, the Democrats would be thrilled to get Brown in California and sink in Florida. Two giant states in a big Republican year, they would say, Phew, uh, if they can get those two. They're not going to get Texas. Uh, New Mexico, you got a Republican uh, Hispanic woman coming in. Nevada, you got a Hispanic Republican man coming in. Uh, so they're getting some diversity. Nikki Haley in South Carolina, though I doubt she goes further based on loads of things that have emerged. Uh, in, uh, in that race. Enough said about that. And Democrats will win, you know, a few. I've mentioned California, Minnesota. I think they'll win. I think they'll uh, pick up the Rhode Island governorship. I'm not sure about Massachusetts. That's gotten really close. All right, so you've got a big, big change to the Republicans in governorships. Here's the other half of it. When you've got coattail, like you're going to have generated by all these new Republican governors and new Republican senators, and new Republican congressmen, you're going to elect a lot more state legislators. Our analysis is that at a minimum, the Republicans are going to gain four to 500 additional state legislative seats. Could be more than that. They're likely to gain eight to 14 additional legislative chambers across the country. And generally in those blue states, those are really closely divided legislative chambers. It takes only one, two, three, four votes to switch them. We think almost all of those blue legislative chambers will turn red. And the red ones are going to stay red even though they're close. They're going to, Republicans will build up their margins and the two split chambers in Montana and Alaska will go Republican. So why does this matter? Because if you want to win one gubernatorial year in 10, you pick the census year. 
It's the year that matters. If you elect more governors and state legislators in the census year, then you're able to influence redistricting that occurs in 2011, uh, and you stretch your political control over 10 years in the 45 states with, without nonpartisan redistricting. Virginia is one of them. When you, of course, we don't have legislative elections this year. But the point is, you can stretch your control. Uh, once you design those districts, uh, you, can, you can add easily 10, 12 seats to your party in a state legislature. So it's going to be a big year for Republicans at the state level. Now, uh, just one other note about this redistricting. This is my estimate combined with some others' estimates of what uh, reapportionment will do. And those of you who live in the Northeast and Midwest, you already know this map because you have suffered through it since 1950. It's the same thing every 10 years. The Northeast and Midwest, the Frost Belt, loses population to the South and the West, the Sun Belt, and with population goes additional representation. Look at the losses at New York, poor New York. Uh, I was, uh, I'm writing this, this book on um, Kennedy for the 50th anniversary of, the, of his assassination in 2013 and looking back on the 50 years and what's happened to America and so on. Uh, but uh, when he was elected, New York, mid-40s electoral votes. It's going to be mid-20s after, uh, after 2010. Pennsylvania's gone way down. Ohio's gone way down. And you see Florida's gaining too. Look, where are my Texans? Where are my Texans? I know we got some Texans in here. I never mess with you. You're all well-armed. Uh, <laughs> although I admit you usually show the weapons, and we appreciate that. None of this concealed weapons business with Texans. Uh, that's four additional electoral votes automatically in the Republican column for 2012. In fact, if you look carefully at these votes, it's, it's an additional seven or eight seats uh, as electoral votes added to any Republican nominee, except for one way out. We'll talk about that in a moment. And remember, the same seven or eight votes subtracted from the Democratic column. So, you know, it's a net change of 14, 16 votes in the electoral uh, column. If it's a close race, that will really matter. Now, oddly, there's a, there's a silver lining for Democrats. At least two of those four seats in Texas will be Hispanic seats. They'll be Hispanic Democratic seats. Nobody believes this, but it's true. By mid-century, given current population growth and the lack of Hispanic support for Republicans, Texas is likely to be a lean Democrat state. If Republicans don't crack the Hispanic vote, I don't see how they win elections later in the century, except when people just want to throw the Democrats out. But it, it, you get a party and a half system instead of a two-party system. Look at California. Last comment on this one. California, what's significant about this? For the first time since it became a state in 1850, it is not gaining multiple seats in the House of Representatives. Because of the turmoil in California, the terrible economy, Frankly, the mistakes made by the people in referenda and initiative, which have boxed in the government, they can't organize a three-car funeral, which they need uh, now in California. People are, are voting with their feet. They're moving disproportionately out of California. They're either going to lose a seat or gain nothing. So the Golden State is very tarnished uh, compared to what it once was. Now, briefly, 2012, then we'll take your questions. Uh, this, I don't know the answer, but this graph is the entire election of 2012. Because remember, elections are always about the presidential incumbent when there's an incumbent running. Is Barack Obama going to be the next Jimmy Carter 
or the next Bill Clinton. That is, is he going to be a president with the bad luck to have a bad economy at election time? Carter had two recessions within 18 months of the 1980 election. Is he going to have the bad luck of Jimmy Carter in foreign affairs, not sending enough helicopters uh, to the desert to rescue the Iranian hostages? Uh, or is he going to be Bill Clinton, a very lucky president who could time his recessions and his scandals for non-election times? <laughs> it's all about timing, sex and politics. Um, which is it going to be? I don't know. I don't know. You don't know. But that's the question to ask yourself over and over again as we move through the next two years. Now, both parties have image problems, no question. Interestingly, the voters may, may take care of two of the Democratic Party's image problems. Nancy Pelosi, and she won't be Speaker, and Harry Reid, he may not be Majority Leader even in the Senate uh, after this election. The Republicans have a more complicated picture as parties who are out of power often do. They have people fighting for control and nobody in charge until there's a presidential nominee and they all disagree with one another and you, the most outlandish people get the most attention because it sells the most papers and gets the most viewers and we're not going to go into the particulars of the individuals, but you know who I mean. Uh, from today, only 752 days till the next presidential election, in case you're counting. Um, and remember, it, it actually starts in January or February in Iowa of 2012. That is just a year and two months away. We're almost on it. Yay. Okay. <laughs> Forget about what you have been told by Bob Woodward. It's just classic Bob Woodward behavior because he's Bob Woodward. He can get away with that. Anybody else who said that without proof would be reamed, and appropriately so. Uh, Bob gets away with it because he's Bob. He has no proof whatsoever and there is no effort and there will be no effort to change vice presidents. Yes, it may make political sense. I could make you a good argument politically as to why uh, Hillary Clinton ought to be the VP candidate instead of Joe Biden. But you see, for this to work, think about American history. Other than Ford dumping Rockefeller, the last time a president did it and won was Roosevelt, did it twice. We're in, a, we're in a totally different era. In order for that to happen, you would have to have Joe Biden acquiesce to the change and suffer in silence. Have you ever known Joe Biden to suffer in silence? <laughs> Even one time? No. Not a chance. Now, they may run against each other in the primaries. That is Biden and Hillary, Hillary in 2016, and that would be a lot of fun. I'd pay for that. I would, I'd send them both large contributions. Uh, now, I'm going to try and do this diplomatically because I, I just don't want to cause any upset when we want to be united today behind our team um, as, we, as we attempt to rebuild and start winning again. Uh, now, here's how I'm going to be diplomatic. I'm, it's a long list anyway. I'm not going to talk about all of them. I'm simply going to go down the list that I have here and only mention the names of Republicans who could win if the economy is still bad and they are mainstream, they are kept mainstream during the process. They have to be mainstream to begin with. The process can pull them out of the mainstream. But they have to be candidates who can actually win if the opportunity presents itself by a bad economy. So let's start down the list. Mitt Romney. Yeah, why don't you see who I skipped? Okay, I can't help it. I have to comment on her. 
I'm sure some of you like her. I like her. She's fun. She's interesting. She makes business for me. I'm part of the economy. I think it's great. Americans have already made up their mind about Sarah Palin. They've made up their mind. 45% of Republicans don't believe she's qualified to be president. The rest of the country is overwhelmingly opposed to the idea of her as president. Now, the Tea Party wants her. That's the number one choice. Fine. But if the Republicans, those of you who are in the Republican Party here, if you nominate Sarah Palin, the Republican Party platform will be the longest suicide note ever written. <laughs> Feel free. That's your choice. And that's it. Now, Mitt Romney, sure, businessman, bad economy, I can fix it. Look what I did with the Olympics. Look what I did in Massachusetts. The problem's going to be nom getting nominated because of his, he had an Obamacare. He passed a health care program that, for my money, is almost identical to what Obama did. That's going to be tough to get the Tea Party to sign off on. Tim Pawlenty, uh, he's the opposite of Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney's blue blood. Tim Pawlenty is blue collar. Governor of, of Minnesota, he's r running flat out. He's a long shot. But if he were nominated, he could win. Haley Barber, and Haley's one of the best political strategists in American history. There's absolutely no question about it. Uh, he, he is really first rate. Now, uh, and, and he's, uh, he can be very, very good, particularly after, uh, after a pint of Jim Beam, um, <laughs> which he has frequently. He's visited me in Pavilion 4, right? Yes, yes, um, it's at least a pint. Um, my, uh, UVA student, tell this, because Haley would tell it on himself. UVA student, uh, former student of mine, was his personal assistant. The very first thing they did when he got here, he took me aside and said, where's the nearest liquor store? Haley wanted his pint of Jim Beam. Um, and that's okay. That's the least of anybody's problems. Like the other stuff I'm getting, listen, I'd, I'd be grateful to find out most of these candidates are drinking. <laughs> um, you see why I wanted this off the record? You see why I wanted it off the record? And I, I have to like Haley Barber. But, you know, Governor of Mississippi, the number one Washington lobbyist for 12 years, how's he going to get that past the Tea Party? That's going to be tough to do. But, you know, he would get elected, I think, if he could get nominated. Uh, Mitch Daniels, governor of uh, Indiana, very competent, very able. I've known Mitch for many, many years. Uh, he, he really understands federal government, the budget, and he was, he was uh, head of the budget uh, a number of years ago. Uh, he is so competent, he has no chance whatsoever. Uh, John Thune, dark horse for, uh, senator from uh, South Dakota. Again, I think a perfectly presentable candidate. I could see him doing well. He's nicely positioned if, you know, lightning strikes. And that's what has to happen. Lightning has to strike for a dark horse like that. Okay, now let's go down that list, finding other potential winners. Candidate X. Um, Newt, come on, get real, people. I'm not even going to get into the personal baggage. I mean, this is a guy who is, he's gotten so extreme and out there. Uh-uh, uh-uh, not a chance that he would win. Even, I think with a bad economy, I think he would reelect Obama. Uh, Rick Santorum, whose major qualification is losing his own Senate seat by 19 points. Um, so candidate X. Somebody who wins in 2010, who really catches the imagination of the party, like Chris Christie did by winning the New Jersey governorship. I happen to be convinced he's not running. They've convinced me. I wondered whether he was. I'm now convinced he's not. Maybe they're lying and they're good. I mean, they're from New Jersey. So <laughs> it's, it's possible they could have fooled me. 
but uh, I don't think he's running. But somebody like Rick Schneider, you know, the moderates might want a candidate in the field. Somebody unsullied, if he can start to turn Michigan around, poor Michigan, been in a, a one-state depression for over 10 years. So uh, we'll see. It's going to be interesting to see who emerges. Marco Rubio may, may get the presidential itch. I don't know. In Florida, you don't rule anybody out who comes from Florida. Well, as I always tell you, and we do this every two years at election time, my site's called the crystal ball. Uh, he who lives by the crystal ball ends up eating ground glass. There will be some races I've miscalled because things will happen between now and November 2nd. But I hope I've given you an accurate picture from 30,000 feet. This is the most important slide because, of course, it has the three most recent books, um, <laughs> which make wonderful holiday gifts. Now, let me, I think we've got some mics here, and I, I will be very, you've got to be bold. You have to get up, and, and our Virginia people are bold. So I'm going to take them one at a time. Yes, sir. How about Perry Yellow? <laughs> you would ask me about the local congressman. Uh, I'm just going to tell you frankly because it's on our website. We have it leans Republican. We've had it leans Republican for some time. He, you know, he won by the slimmest margin of every single congressman in America in 2008, which was the best Democratic year in Virginia since 1964. 700 and I think it was 727, 747 votes. Okay, has he done a good job? He's worked extremely hard. I give him full credit for that. But you know, how do you swim against that tide in a district that, remember, voted for McCain? Why did he win? Because his Republican opponent, Virgil Goode, threw it away. He wouldn't even endorse McCain for a while. He was picking fights with McCain. So you had a certain number of McCain voters in the district who either didn't vote or voted for Perriello to stick it to good. Yeah, that was stupid. You know. But sometimes politicians think they can't lose. When you think you can't lose, you're halfway to losing. Now, let me go to the second mic, and, sir, I'm going to come back to you. Yes, sir. Yes, there are all of these uh, projections about big Republican wins in November. I think that's a vast left-wing conspiracy to uh, build complacency among the people on the right. Conservatives are usually Republican. I'm a so maybe, maybe they don't come out and vote because they think the, the election's in the bag. Are, are you part of that vast left-wing yes. conspiracy? <laughs> yes, you, you have... You have you, I was a bearded Marxist, like uh, Chris Coons, and, <laughs> and some of you knew me. Where's my class of 74? Absolutely, you know. I can't lie to you. You remember. But, you know, age does things to you, you know. Uh, but uh, in any event, look, um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you where I agree with you. Some of your leadership, and I assume you're Republican, some of your leadership really needs to go back into politics 101. I'll be happy to teach them for a few lectures. I, again, dumb, dumb, dumb things to have John Boehner, the speaker-in-waiting, say, uh, 70 or we're picking up 70 or 80 seats. And Newt says, huh, 80 or 90. And Dick Morris says, over 100. Now, what happens on election night? You see, Democrats run those clips and they say, look at this. What a disaster. They only won 47. Pitiful. Pitiful. You never say that. You say, it's nip and tuck. Every vote counts. We have a chance to win the House by one vote. You know, and then when you win by 10, you say, my God, it's the greatest victory in American history. I, what, isn't that elementary? Doesn't everybody get that? Why don't they get it? 
because there's there and this is the worst part they're trying to sell their books <laughs> yes let me start by saying and reminding you that OTB also means off-track betting I, I never I don't bet don't even play the lottery my question to you is do you think there's any possibility that Obama will pull a Lyndon Johnson and announce that he's not running that's a very good question. I actually get that a lot. And look, there's always a chance. I mean, I can't read somebody's mind, but I'd say there's a 99.9% .9 chance he's running again. Everything I see says he's running again. Uh, remember, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson had a very peculiar set of circumstances, including poor health. I mean, as we, and he knew, and he said at the time, privately, most male members of my family don't live much into their 60s. And sure enough, he died, I think it was 62 uh, somewhere. It was the low 60s. He died. Uh, he had one of his heart attacks right here in Charlottesville, visiting Chuck Robb and Linda Bird when, they, when Chuck was in, in law school. And uh, there's still stories up at the, up at the hospital. The classic Lyndon Johnson, he's been an ex-president for several years, takes over a whole floor, uh, and they install like 50 phones, you know, for Lyndon Johnson and his staff. I mean, I don't know what they did with the other patients. There were probably some fatalities, but what the heck. Um, <laughs> I don't think it'll happen. I, I think he will. I think he will run again. Yeah, he's a young man. You know, say, what are you going to do? Well, of course, that happened to Jimmy Carter. You know, and then he had this long ex-presidency, and he's become superior to uh, all of the other ex-presidents. For those of you who follow the news. Uh, okay, now I'm, then you have to get up to a mic. I can't call. You have to get up. And I'm going to call on this person. I want you to get up. Good for you. So tell Let me, me can up. we buy all 24 of your books on that website? Uh, we're going to arrange for that, <laughs> sir, if you're interested. All right. Absolutely. No, so, you see one of my staff members back there. All right. They get a cut. Good. All right. So uh, actually, you mentioned uh, uh, some of the contenders for 2012. And there's a couple of tier two ones that you did not mention. So just touch on a couple of these, like former New Mexico Governor, Governor Gary Johnson and Herman Cain, Georgia. Sure. Good question. Uh, Gary Johnson's an interesting guy, but he's a super libertarian. You know that. He's for uh, legalization of drugs, not just decriminalization. Uh, he was governor of New Mexico uh, for two terms, uh, been long out of office. Uh, I can't imagine uh, that, obviously, the Republicans are not going to nominate him. He would run as a libertarian. Now, look, every four years I hear from the libertarians on one side and the Greens on another as to why it's their year, and, you know, and I say, yep, you might actually break 1%. Uh, it's entirely possible. And it, it's not going to happen, I don't think, in 2012 either. I'll tell you what may happen. If we continue with this economic dislocation, don't be shocked if we have one or more third parties emerge. Could be all over the spectrum. And I don't know who they would be, and I don't know how, much, how many votes they get. I can't tell you. But I think that's got to be part of the calculation. Yes, ma'am. How? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't comment on his other uh, Herman Cain. Uh, Herman Cain, you know, I, he doesn't look. He's never been elected sheriff. Okay, I, I really wonder about people who run for president who've never been elected sheriff. It really helps to have been elected sheriff. You know certain things to do and certain things not to do in running for office, and it's not going to happen. Not going to happen, huh? Yeah, no, and, and look, he could run for a, a position in Georgia, and Georgia's, you know, deeply red. Look, you're about to elect a guy, Nathan Deal, and i got to tell you, there's, there's a 
second-rate candidate of ever, second-rate, no, second-rate person. Look at the scandals that have broken on this guy. But Georgia is now as red as it's clay. And you cannot get Roy, Roy Barnes, former governor, Democratic governor, you can't get him elected, no matter how many scandals break on Nathan Deal. So if, you want, if you're a Republican, you want to get elected, go down to Georgia, find a district, and run. Yes, ma'am. Do you think that immigration will ever come to be a real factor in, you know, in, in how people are voting on the national political level? Coming from California, it, you know, I have some history with that, and it really does impact, um, in a lot of ways, the, the state, but it seems to stay a fairly local kind of issue. Well, you've asked a good question. Ever, I love it when people say, do you ever think, because that gives me an out. And I can say, I think toward the end of this century. Uh, and then no one can prove me wrong. I feel it's coming by the end of the century, is what I usually say. Uh, look, I, I don't know, I can tell you this, that the enormous tragedy, and I know some of you feel strongly about immigration, you probably disagree with me, but I think that we missed an enormous opportunity, a great opportunity, when Bush, uh, proposed that and Bush was right and even the Democrats admit now Bush was right and McCain was right to sponsor what they did it was a compromise why did it fail uh, in 2005-2006 it failed because the left wing of the Democratic Party wanted to make political hay and the right wing of the Republican Party wanted to make political hay and they brought down a terrific reasonable compromise on immigration that would have essentially not solve this problem, but solve the bulk of the problem. And we would have been a better, stronger country for it. And it'll be years before we ever get to that point again, sadly. We're so polarized. Yes, sir. Two years ago, I asked you a question after listening to Ed Mazur. You asked me what now? Uh, I asked you a question after listening to Ed Mazur about the uh, economic situation of this country, uh, about the direct debt, but particularly about indirect debt. Yes. And how this country was effectively bankrupt. And in the last two years, of course, we've seen a lot of the indirect now become being called and now become direct debt. You know, and again, we're still sure. pretty much in the same situation. Has either party realistically learned the lesson over the last two years? Do we expect to see any holdback? I don't see a lot of international grants to the extent that they used to, but the indirect debt seems to still be out there, and there seems to be no debt, no limit to it. Yeah, well, it's headed for 19 trillion by the end of this, uh, by the end of this uh, decade under current projections. Could be worse, could be better, but it's probably around 19 trillion. Uh, and I think I think you said it right. Both parties have really dirty hands on on the debt. Uh, I tell you, I don't know the answer. They all they say the right things. Everybody's mouthing the right platitudes. The real test is going to come December 2nd when the Debt Commission reports. And those of you have been, they've been very quiet. They've kept everything secret as they must do in order to come to some kind of reasonable compromise. And let me tell you, you are going to yelp when you see that report because every person in this room is going to feel great pain. And we all know what that means. People focus on their own pain, and they may not look to see whether other people are also feeling pain. I think everybody's going to feel pain from what they're likely to propose. And if we're serious about taking care, you owe me a dollar. You let that thing ring, and I charge a dollar in class when a cell phone rings. No, $20. You're a graduate. You can afford it. 
You give that to the Alumni Association for their social fund. Uh, when, when, if we're going to get this debt down, if we're ever going to get uh, in charge again of our fiscal house, we're going to have to do some really painful things, you know, like raising the retirement age, at least for some jobs, like, say, faculty jobs. I mentioned all inside work, no heavy lifting. Now, <laughs> digging ditches, do you really think people can go beyond 62, 65? Uh, they're going to have to be some tough decisions made about, about what jobs can, can retire when. But all of these things are going to be in that report. And just get ready, because there's going to be a tremendous uproar when it comes out. And I worry that it's going to be the usual selfish reaction of don't tax me, don't tax thee, my friend, tax that fellow behind the tree. Don't cut my spending, don't cut my friend's spending, cut the spending of those people over there I don't know in that other state. And if we have that kind of selfish reaction again, get ready for the 19 trillion plus debt. Yes. Uh, since the Five more minutes. Uh, not, you're telling me, to, Althea, to be shorter in my answers. I just want to point out that none of them have exceeded the 50-minute limit of class. <laughs> yes. Uh, since the cynic in me thinks the president is thinking more about 2012 than 2010, is there an extent to which he would welcome uh, Republican control or mixed control of Congress so there'd be someone else to blame than the previous administration in case of things course. don't go well? Politically, of course. Look, Bill Clinton didn't want to lose Congress. It reelected him. Uh, Barack Obama doesn't want to lose Congress. It could reelect him if the economy improves. Look, if the economy is in, if we have a, a double-dip recession or things spiral out of control, which is a real possibility, and you know, think about this foreclosure thing and so on, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, I, there's no way for an incumbent to get reelected. But uh, if the economy improves, he will, and it's in that nether gray region, he will want to have some devil figures. That's the key to American politics today. You have to have some devil figures to attack. And obviously the Republicans already have theirs in Obama. He's going to have his uh, in fairly bland, anonymous Republican leaders. I mean, you could squeeze John Boehner and Mitch McConnell together and you couldn't get an ounce of charisma. <laughs> now you know that. They're, they're easy to trump in a public forum. And then you got the Tea Party people. Think about Sharon Angle and Rand Paul and Ken Buck and you know Joe Miller. Uh, think about them on the floor of the Senate having unlimited debate day after day after day for the next two years. I mean, we'd have a best of video. It would be it would be a massive seller, and that's going to help Obama if it happens. So you're right. Yes, where I live. Uh, our county council members are elected both at large and by district. Where do you live? In Montgomery County. I in, see. Okay. Right. And part of the election process, though, is that everybody in the county votes for the district candidates. Mm -hmm. Do you think if it were feasible to do that with our U.S. Senate races, i.e. have resident-specific Senate candidates, but voting at large across the country would influence the ability to get things done in this country? Sir, first of all, you obviously have not read a more perfect <laughs> constitution. Uh, because in, in chapter two, I propose national senators. And we agree, which means you need to buy multiple copies. <laughs> so I agree with you. That's a good, that's a, that's, that's a very good idea because it was mine. <laughs> Let me get the fellow behind you here. <laughs> the the uh, Washington Post ran an article within the last week or so talking about how the American electorate had changed over the last 15 years. These sweeping observations. 
And I think at the end of the article it said this is based on a, a study of 2,000 randomly selected citizens. How much stock can we put in studies like that and, and then the dueling pollsters that both parties seem to have? I didn't see it. I, the Washington Post is not one of my favorite newspapers, not for ideological reasons, but for other reasons. I know too much about them. I know, know too many of the people there. Uh, so I, I rarely look at it. But I will simply say this. This is a, it's a, a question I get a lot about random samples. And random samples, number one, as I've told people for years, you let me pick the sample and you let me interpret the results and I will get you any answer you want. <laughs> oh, I need to word the questions, too. Uh, so that's part of it. Uh, second, uh, polling studies can be accurate. I'd have to look at the specifics of that. Uh, and the, the, uh, the science of random sampling is valid. That is, within a certain percentage margin of error, you can get some representation of the general population. The problem today is, of course, cell phones. Many of the pollsters do not. Uh, uh, question cell phone users, although I do believe the post does. They, they include cell phones. So a lot of them don't, and that de-randomizes uh, the, uh, the sample. Also, they overweight today because of the refusal rates. We're all busy, and most of us don't answer the phone. We look at caller ID, and frankly, unless I absolutely know who it is, I never answer, just in case you get my voicemail. I just don't because you never know who's going to catch you and try to keep you on for 30 minutes or whatever the case may be. So this means that, that if they get 10 18 to 30-year-olds in their sample, they finally got 10 interviews completed, they assume that these 18 to 30-year-olds are representative of the 50 it should have been to have a complete sampling. Well, that ain't necessarily so. Uh, the ones who happen to be at home uh, for whatever reason may be different than the ones who are doing other things. Maybe they have jobs, maybe they're in college, whatever the case may be. So we have a high refusal rate. It's enormous in some areas. People will just refuse to participate. And that causes dramatic weighting of the responses you do get, which can de-randomize the results. So less and less can we depend on the results of public opinion survey. Let me get these last two. and then we'll be ready to go. Uh, what do you think of the work of uh, Nate, speaking of polling, of Nate Silver and 538.com, and how much does uh, polling data factor into the crystal ball? Thank you. Uh, Nate, I, I think, obviously, I think a lot of Nate Silver because just this week he came to the conclusion that Republicans were taking over the House by a margin of 47.5 seats <laughs> before Labor Day, the crystal ball projected plus 47. So he's late, but he's good. <laughs> yes. George Lakoff, linguist yes, sure. hey, slash political scientist, sure. has argued that conservatives have done a much better job in the last 10, 15 years in framing issues, much mm -hmm. better job than liberals. My question to you is, and for his example, classic example, taxes. Taxes are bad, and you have to start from there. Do you agree with his analysis? Uh, you know, I always, I, I, whenever that phrase is used, I always remember for my friends from New Jersey that great, horribly corrupt, truly evil boss, Frank Haig. Remember? Some of you in New Jersey, Frank Haig. His most famous legacy to us is the phrase, taxes is losers. Um, that probably says it, says it better. But look, 
Does language matter? Of course it matters. And it's important for both parties to use the right language to describe their, their proposals. But here's my problem with his analysis and with the analysis of others like Drew Weston down at, at Emory, who does the same thing uh, for the House Democratic Caucus now. They, uh, and uh, Frank Luntz for the Republicans, they assume too much power in the phraseology. Fundamental conditions matter more than anything. The state of the economy, war and peace, scandals, uh, uh, powerful social issues. These things drive elections, not whether you include uh, a, a particular word in a phrase. It may help you a little. It may get you a quarter of a percentage point, but it doesn't help when you're behind eight. That would be my answer to that. As always, I have enjoyed being with you. If you have other questions, come on up. I've got a few minutes. I hope we win today, and thanks for coming. On behalf of the Alumni Association and the Office of Engagement, just a small token of our appreciation for having Larry Sabato speak this morning. Let's give him another hand of applause.